scripture from Isaiah, you know, what was going on with the Israelites. Like, they had rebelled against God. They had chosen evil over righteousness. And, uh, and we're going to see how that plays out in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 today. <clears throat> For some reason, human beings can't walk in a straight line. Did you know that? There's just something about our inner orientation that causes us to walk in a crooked or warped way. That's the conclusion of Robert Crawlwich, science correspondent for NPR. In an interview on Morning Edition, Crawlwich cites a study from Jan Suman, a scientist from Germany, who blindfolded his subjects and then asked them to walk for an hour in a straight line. Without exception, people couldn't do it. Of course, everybody thinks they're walking in a straight line until they remove the blindfolds and see their crooked path. Now, Crawlwich observed, this tendency has been studied now for at least a century. We animated field tests from the 1920s so you can literally see what happens to men who are blindfolded and told to walk across a field in a straight line or swim across a lake in a straight line, and they couldn't. In the animation, you see them going in these strange loop-de-loops in either direction. Apparently, there's a profound inability in humans to walk straight. <laughs> According to this research, there's only one way we can walk in a straight line, by focusing on something ahead of us, like a building, a landmark, or a mountain. If we can fix our eyes on something ahead of us, we can make ourselves avoid our normal crooked course. Crawlwich concludes, without external cues, there's apparently something in us that makes us turn from a, uh, from a straight path. And as I think about this as followers of Jesus Christ, we realize that in order for us to, quote-unquote, walk a straight line, we have to fix our eyes on God. And this includes uh, marriage relationships as well. You know, one of the blessings that Judy and I have in our marriage is that we both grew up attending United Brethren in Christ churches, so we had the same faith a heritage. Uh, it wasn't like we uh, had to determine like which, you know, which kind of church are we going to go to. I mean, we've, we've just had that. It's been a blessing in our marriage. We met at Huntington College, which is now Huntington University, which is the denominational college for the United Brethren in Christ denomination. And so um, we were both followers of Jesus Christ when we met. And because of our faith and common upbringing, we had the same goals. And we were fixing our eyes on God. And he's the one who's helped us to walk straight. Those same goals and focus have enabled us over the years to stay connected and growing on our love and dedication for each other. And God's brought us together for a purpose to serve him in ministry. Now I realize, we realize, that not all marriage relationships are like that. Not all marriage relationships start with that kind of foundation where you grew up in the same denomination or same church background. We realize that that is the case and it breaks our hearts for those who have struggled in their marriages and have even gotten divorced. There's a story of one person there who said that after two days of being married, they realized that they had made a mistake. You're still on the honeymoon at that point, right? I hope. It's like, I made a mistake. They weren't following the Lord. Their eyes were not fixed on the Lord when they met their spouse and subsequently married someone who was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And of course, that created all kinds of problems in the marriage, which finally resulted in divorce. This person deals with regret because of marrying someone who was not a believer. And this story is not an isolated incident. It probably happens more often than we know, and perhaps every one of us knows of someone who has experienced this, or maybe we've experienced it ourselves. And so we'll see today that the population of the earth exploded and that sin was rampant. 
This broke God's heart as he watched godly individuals compromise their convictions and marry ungodly individuals. And while this happened on a large scale, there was still hope because of one man and his family who had their eyes fixed on God. And so we're going to learn today that our heart will find what it's looking for. So we're going to learn, that's our big idea in this passage today. If our eyes are fixed on the things of this world, then our heart will find the things of this world. And if our eyes are fixed on the Lord, then our heart will find the things of the Lord. And so that's important for us to think about today. And as we uh, contemplate that, and before we dive in, let's just pause and commit this message to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today as broken people. We come to you as, as people who have struggled in our relationships, whether it's marriage relationships or other relationships. We confess that before you, Lord God. <clears throat> Lord, we come as people who find just what we're looking for, what our heart desires. And Lord, sometimes that's the things of this world. And so we confess that before you today. I pray now for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. So we look at this passage of Scripture today, that, Lord God, you would apply it to our lives through the Holy Spirit, that it would transform us. So we commit ourselves to you now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have just two points today, and that's the pursuit of sin and the punishment for sin. The pursuit of sin in verses 1 to 4 and then verses 5 to 8 is the punishment for sin. But let's look at verses 1 to 4 in Genesis chapter 6. This is what God's word tells us. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children with them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. <clears throat> so what we see here is the population of the earth in Noah's time just exploded. And so um, I like what uh, John Corson says. It kind of helps us to understand a little bit. If a man has four kids and lives to see his kids have kids... In five generations, his family will number 96. In 10 generations, the population will jump to 3,070. In 20 generations, the population soars to 3,120,000. And in 30 generations, it skyrockets to 3,220,000,000. That's just all from one family <laughs> with four kids. If a generation is 40 years, with at least 40 generations listed in Genesis 5, the population on earth in Noah's day would have been conservatively billions and billions of people. So think about that. The Population Reference Bureau lists the world population in 2020 as 7.8 billion. So potentially Noah was living in a time where there were more people on the earth than there are today on the earth. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because we look at the genealogy in chapter 5, and it seems pretty compact in 32 verses. We're like, how did billions and billions of people come from just that 32 verses of, of genealogy? Well, we never really stopped to think about what it's, what's being said when the list 
when they list the firstborn son and then mention that the individual had other sons and daughters. We kind of skim over that, right? Because it's repetitive. And we're like, okay, yeah, yeah whatever. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and they lived so many years, and, and then they had more, you know, and then they had that at the end, and they had more sons and daughters, and then they died. And we're like, oh, okay, I know this, and we just, we kind of just skim over it quickly, not even thinking about what's being said in that passage. It's like, yeah, there's, they're having more sons and daughters, and, and they're marrying, and they're having kids, and so there's billions and billions of people. Then we see that these sons of God, you know, are finding the, the daughters of men beautiful, and, and marrying any that they want to marry. And so, who are the sons of God? There's three views concerning who they were. The first view was, was unanimous up through the second century AD, and it was that they were angelic beings. Whether evil or good, they were angelic beings. And so, <clears throat> the phrase sons of God is used in three other places in the Old Testament. Uh, that refer to angels, and it's all found in the book of Job, three different verses in the book of Job. Now, after the second century hit, the Jews and the Christians decide, well, we don't know that it is angelic beings, and so the Jews had one view and the Christians had a, another view. The Jews had the view that it was talking about rulers and kings, and the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is used for rulers in Exodus 22, 8-9, and Psalm 82, verse 6. And so the Jews were like, these are rulers, and they're taking any women that they want. They're marrying multiple women all at the same time. And so <clears throat> this is what it's talking about, and that was probably part of their culture of that day. Those who hold to this belief focus on those passages. Then the Christians said, well, no, we think it means something different than that. We think it's talking about the Sethites. So Adam's son, Adam and Eve's son, Seth, um, we... This view focuses on the passages where those who are spiritual are called God's children, such as Deuteronomy 14.1. We know from Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, that during the time that Seth had his son Enosh, that men began to call on the name of the Lord. We also know that it's from Seth's line that Noah is born, and from Noah's line that Abraham is born, and way down the line, Jesus. So it's like, wow, it's talking about the Sethites, like these godly people. What makes it most difficult to determine which view is correct is that all of them can be defended with Scripture. Now, we'll come back to this in just a moment. But the daughters of men, that distinction doesn't need any further explanation. It's talking about human women. And so uh, these uh, sons of God married any of uh, these daughters of men that they chose to. The Hebrew word for marriage is the usual word used for marriage. It doesn't carry any connotations of the daughters of men being forced to have sexual relationships or being raped um, with the sons of God or forced into marriage. It was consensual agreed upon by both uh, parties. So what exactly then is the concern here with the sons of God marrying the daughters of men? Let's return to the three views of who the sons of God are. If it, if it is angelic beings, the concern with human women marrying angelic beings is their transgression of boundaries. There were boundaries that God had set up in his creation, right? We think about this in the creation story when God said that each plant was to reproduce its own kind. Every animal was to reproduce its own kind. And while it's not said uh, directly or specifically about human beings, the, the principle is the same. Human beings are to reproduce in their own kind. So the reproduction of angelic beings with uh, human beings would produce demigods, as the Greek myth mythological accounts tell us. Think of Hercules, right? He had this superhuman strength because he was part human and part God. 
So that's the angelic one. It's the transgression of boundaries. God never designed for that to happen. If it's the rulers and the kings, the concern with human women marrying human rulers was that the rulers of the day would, would have married multiple women. The offense would have been polygamy or promiscuity. And we already saw that with Lamech and Cain's line, not to be confused with Lamech from Seth's line. Then the third view of the Sethites, the, the concern with human women marrying human men from Seth's line, is the, the mixing of godly with ungodly. The offense would have been spiritual exogamy, and that simply means marriage outside the group. So we have all of that. But, but I, I want you to think about this with me this morning before I, I talk a little bit more about the godly and the ungodly. I think we'd be naive to think that all of Cain's line were just evil. Like none of them ever sought God. I think that would be wrong of us to think that, that Cain's line was just so evil that there was, there was no redemption there at all. And I think it's uh, foolhardy of us to think that all of Seth's line were just righteous guys. Like they never did anything wrong. And then we have to keep in mind that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. So you have all of those people as well. And we can't just go, well, some of them were good and some of them were bad. And No, we, so we can't think about that. So that's why... I really believe because of the punishment that's coming is for mankind only, I tend to shy away from the view that the sons of God were angelic beings. The identification of the sons of God is less important than the principle or truth behind it, which Gangle and Bramer bring out perfectly. They say this, whatever position one takes on the identification of sons of God, the truth remains that there was a sin, there was a sin of improper mixed marriage that resulted in great sin and eventually necessitated God's worldwide judgment. And we see this with the Israelites, don't we? God says, when you go into the promised land, make sure to just wipe out everybody that's in the promised land, because if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. Because guess what? They're not following me. They're following other gods and idols. And we see what happened when they started to intermarry with them and started to hang out with them. Uh, those people didn't, didn't become Jews. They didn't become followers of God. No, the Israelites were pulled into sin, were pulled into idol worship, and they were sent into captivity. So often you hear couples that are, one's a believer and one's not, and you hear the believer say, oh, I'm just, I'm going to save them. And a lot of times that's not the case. Now, it's not that it never happens. I don't want you to think that. It has happened. But most of the time, the believer gets drawn into the world. We see that here. We see that in the time of the Israelites. We see it out, down through generation upon generation. And so the first principle this morning is that God is concerned about proper marriage because godly marriages are the foundation of a righteous society. Choosing a spouse is a serious matter before the Lord. This is a covenant between you and another person and God. A covenant's not something that you just break easily. We should be very careful who we marry, and in fact, we should be very careful who we date, because once an emotional attachment is formed, it's very difficult to break that connection, even if we know that we should. In the introduction, you know, the, that, that person that two days in to being married said, I think I made a mistake. They should have broke that um, uh, engagement off and never gotten married. But again, they didn't have their eyes fixed on Jesus. They, they, their heart wanted something, and, and it found it. 
So Paul talks about not being yoked with unbelievers when he writes to the Corinthian believers. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. We are the temple of the living God. And so if you're in a dating relationship with an unbeliever, I would encourage you to seek the Lord about ending that relationship. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. <laughs> but it's important. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is for a lifetime. It's until death do us part. You don't want to enter into that flippantly. Now, if you're in a marriage with an unbeliever, listen to Paul's advice to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. See, I realize that people married when they're both were unbelievers, and one of them turns to Christ during that marriage. And that spouse may go, I don't even know you anymore. Like, who is this Jesus you're talking about? Why do you want to go to church all the time? But if that unbelieving spouse goes, I'm going to hang with you, then we have to stay in that relationship. But if that spouse says, you know what? I don't even know you anymore. I don't even want to be around you anymore. I can't stand you. I want out. Then that believing spouse is released from that relationship. If God is concerned about proper marriages, then we should be concerned about it too. And so the sons of God were being indiscriminate in who they were choosing to marry, and in some cases they were choosing ungodly women, and the reverse was true also. Ungodly men were choosing godly women. And so you see, our heart will find what it's looking for. Now here's a note. I thought this was interesting as I was preparing for this message. We uh, see repeated here what happened with Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, <clears throat> in the creation story, both Eve and these sons of God saw something that was good or beautiful, and they took it. Isn't that interesting? Like, you see the same sin repeated again and again and again. See something that's good, and we take it. And so it was improper mixed marriages and the resulting sin that followed that prompted the Lord to remove his spirit from mankind. What we see here is really a time of grace. Matthews, um, I'm going to quote him, and then he, he quotes Esslinger. He says this, In withdrawing his spirit, the Lord no longer graciously preserves their lifespan. And then Esslinger goes on and says, The attempt by man to become more than he is results in him becoming less. Wow. Now, obviously, after all of, the, of humanity was destroyed through the flood, the Spirit of God would no longer remain in them. With the removal of the Spirit comes this period of grace prior to the punishment. Growing up, I always read this passage and thought that it meant that human beings would not live longer than 120 years. And while well, we know that not too many people do, 
But we also know that some of the patriarchs did live longer than 120 years. Abraham, for example, lived 175 years after all of this pronouncement. Now, I don't know uh, any in our modern age that have lived to 120. I was trying to remember the man's name that used to live down here. He used to be the auctioneer. Slayball. I think he lived to like 103, 104, somewhere in there. That was phenomenal. And he was still driving like a, after he was 100. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody that's lived to 120 years. In studying for this passage or message, it's fascinating that many scholars believe that this 120 years was a period of grace prior to the flood. And what we see, why I say that is like Genesis chapter 5, verse 32 says this, after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then if you look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, it says Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. There's a 100-year span right there of what's happening, what's taking place here. God was providing a time for humanity to repent before he wiped them out. It seems that he used Noah to preach righteousness to them during this time, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. I think this is incredible because it tells us a principle about God, that he is patient. He's patient with his creation, isn't he? I don't know about you, but I, I'm not that patient. I'm like, if someone doesn't do what they should be doing, you know, like, you're, you're out of here, right? If that's potentially a case at work, you get, what, one morning maybe, and then you're gone. But, you know, it could happen in a short period of time. But 100 years, 120 years. This principle is especially true when it comes to salvation. Peter continues writing to the believers, and he reminds them about how God destroyed the earth by flood in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And then he reminds them in, in chapter 3, verse 9, of God's patience when he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's his patience. He's like, I'm giving this time of grace. We're, we're this, all of humanity has fallen into sin except for one family. And it's just mind-blowing to realize that God pronounced judgment on humanity and then waited a hundred years or more to act so that they would have an opportunity to repent and turn to him. God is still patient with his creation today, and perhaps that's a truth that you need to hold on to, especially if you've been praying for years for a loved one to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. And so that's the first next step today is just to claim the promise that God is patient, especially with those who need to repent. Maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I walked away from the Lord, or yeah, I wasn't a believer until I was older. Aren't you glad that God's patient? Aren't you glad that he hasn't returned yet? We know, the whole book of Revelation, you know, we're talking about the fact, um, and when we were studying the book of Revelation, I told you that kind of the, the main point is that God just is continuing to patiently wait for people to turn to him to the very last moment. I'm like, praise the Lord for that. Because maybe you have family members that you're like, Lord, please, have them turn to you. In verse 4, we basically have information that helps us place this story in time. It's a time stamp for us. The Nephilim, the Hebrew word can mean giants or fallen. Kyle and Dillich, um, they, they say Luther gives the correct meaning of tyrants. 
They were called Nephilim because they fell upon the people and oppressed them. These giant fallen tyrants were on the earth before and after the sons of God and daughters of men were marrying and having children. And then the heroes of old are the men of renown. It's mo- it is most natural in the sentence structure to connect the heroes of old and men of renown with the sons and daughters. These are their offspring. Uh, they're not the Nephilim. So we've seen now the pursuit of sin in the first four verses, and we'll see the punishment for sin in verses 5 to 8. Look at those verses with me. The Lord saw how great man's uh, wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we see these things, and I underlined it in my Bible, and if you want to, you can do the same. The Lord saw. Verse uh, 6, the Lord was grieved. And then in verse 7, the Lord said. Those are important points here. What the Lord saw was that humanity was caught up in wickedness. They were focused on it. Their eyes were fixed on it. He saw that human beings thought about evil all the time. Matthew says wickedness is an inner compulsion that dominates their thoughts and is not just overt action. They plot evil as a matter of lifestyle. Like this became their lifestyle. It's like, hey, let's just get together and talk about how we can just plot evil, how we can do bad things. It was a lifestyle for them. Isn't that the human condition, though? We're all born sinners. Paul tells us that in Romans 3.23. And he says this in Romans 3, verses 10 and 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's our human condition. We see it played out here. And that's what God saw and it grieved him. And that just leads us to this principle that God is grieved when his people choose evil over righteousness. He's still grieved by sin today. It, didn't, it wasn't just this one time. And so our, our heart will find what it's looking for. If our heart is looking for evil, we'll find evil. If our heart is looking for righteousness, it will find righteousness. And the imagery here is of a parent who's grieving and feeling the pain associated with losing a child or having a child walk away from the Lord. Some of us have experienced one or both of those things. The child is fixing their eyes on the world instead of God. Their heart's finding what it's looking for, but that brings incredible pain to us as parents or loved ones. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright shares this brief moment she shared with Holocaust survivor and author Eli Weisel. Not long after September 11th, I was on a panel with Eli Weisel. He asked us to name the unhappiest character in the Bible. Some said Job because of the trials he endured. Some said Moses because he was denied entry into the promised land. Some said Mary because she witnessed the crucifixion of her son. Weisel said he believed the right answer was God because of the pain he must surely feel in seeing us fight, kill, and abuse each other in the Lord's name. Wow. This didn't take God by surprise, but knowing that it was coming or was going to happen didn't lessen the pain for him. And after grieving and experiencing the pain of his creation, rebelling, the Lord had to act. 
We see here that humankind, animals of all kinds, and birds will be wiped out. This was God's punishment for the human race that, that thought about evil continually. The animals and birds were an unfortunate side effect of humanity's sin. Because of the way that God was going to destroy the earth, those animals were going to be destroyed too. They weren't going to be able to tread water for 40 plus days. Just think about that. And this is a reminder that our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects others. Walton goes on and says this, The Lord audited the accounts because he had made humankind in the earth, and his heart tormented him. He was distressed. So the Lord said, I will wipe humankind, who I have created from the face of the earth, because I have audited the accounts since I have made them. He's like, I've checked it out, man. They're evil. And so the principle that we see next is that God is just and must punish sin. Many people struggle with this, with God's justice, because it's, um, but it's one of his many attributes. We, we want to just see God as loving, right? We don't like to think about his justice and his punishment. Perhaps the struggle we have is that we really haven't experienced perfect justice in our culture. We know of people who have broken the law and have never been brought to justice, but we also know of people who have been falsely accused and have spent time in jail. Some of them have been found innocent years later and set free. So we look at that and we go, this justice system's all messed up. And so we don't like justice. And we, we superimpose our human idea of justice onto a perfect God and say, well, I don't really like God's justice either, so I don't like to think about the fact that he destroyed billions and billions of people. But he does it perfectly. In, in our humanness, we don't want to see people hurt or destroyed. But guess what? God doesn't want them to be destroyed either. That's why he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As was mentioned earlier, none of us are righteous. We've all turned away from God. None of us does good. And if God did not punish sin, he would not be just. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. While God must punish sin in order to be just, he also has provided a way for us to have our sins forgiven. He sent Jesus from heaven to earth to take our punishment for sin. That's the gift of God that enables us to have eternal life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're not righteous in our own selves. We are sinners, say by grace, through Jesus Christ. And so the second next step, next step today might be for you, and that's to accept God's gift of eternal life by recognizing that Jesus took my punishment for sin. It's great that the passage doesn't end there because that would be dark and depressing, right? <laughs> I'm going to destroy all of mankind. What we see in verse 8 is hope and a future, finding favor. Noah's heart found what it was looking for. Noah had his eyes fixed on the Lord, and it made all the difference. His heart was looking for righteousness. Noah's lifestyle was characterized by righteousness, not by evil. Our heart will find what it's looking for. God's favor is also his grace, which is, which is initiated by him, not us. 
This final principle is that only God's grace can save us from his judgment. Wearsby says this, the only way people can be saved from God's wrath is through God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But grace isn't God's reward for a good life. It's God's response to saving faith. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. True faith involves the whole of the inner person. The mind understands God's warning. The heart fears for what is coming. And the will acts in obedience to God's word. So the final next step today is to worship the Lord for extending his grace to me and saving me from his judgment. Maybe that's where you're at today. You're like, I just need to worship him today. I'm so glad he saved me. I'm so glad he sent Jesus to take my punishment for sin. As we review, what is your heart looking for? Is it the things of this world or the things of God? Have you expressed your gratitude to God for his patience and grace? Are you ready to accept God's gift of eternal life? And for us as a body of believers, how can we help our family and friends with what their heart is looking for. You see, in reality, they may not realize that their heart is looking for Christ. That that's exactly what it is. God has put within each and every one of us this knowledge of Jesus, this knowledge of God. That's really what their heart's looking for. We can pray for them, invite them to revival, share the gospel with them ourselves, We can do any number of those things. As we conclude this morning, are you familiar with the, when I say HMS Bounty? The the most famous part of that is, there was a ship back in 1789. Lieutenant William Blythe was the commander, and he talks about waking up to being seized and bound and taken up onto the deck. And there was a mutiny that took place. And, and uh, anyhow, this Fletcher Christian was uh, basically, they thought he was doing uh, everyone a favor because uh, Blythe wasn't a particularly kind uh, lieutenant. And so what do they do? They decide that they're going to mutiny. And uh, what they were initially going to do is they were all, uh, the, the people that were um, the mutineers, they were going to jump in the longboat and just get away from, and from the big ship. And then the other uh, people that were mutineers said, well, wait, wait a minute, why don't we just put all of, <laughs> why don't we just put all of the, the officers in the longboat and send them out to sea and we'll keep the ship. That's what they did. And so it took quite a while for um, all the officers to eventually make it 3,600 miles to the Dutch East Indies. And then this Lieutenant Blythe made it back to England and then returned to the South Pacific for revenge. But in the meantime, the mutineers were living at large in Tahiti. That's where they had been coming from. And they liked Tahiti. They didn't want to leave. And so they went back to Tahiti, and here's where the story picks up. Though Christian never found out Blythe had survived, he feared that staying at Tahiti would put him in danger of capture. Mutiny was, after all, a capital offense. He re, uh, reboarded the bounty and set out to find a place where he could hide forever. Seven other mutineers, 12 Polynesian women, six Polynesian men, and one infant joined him. After months of exploration, they found Pitcairn Island, which had no people but an abundance of coconuts, breadfruit, and other useful crops. 
The group destroyed the bounty to avoid detection by passing ships and settled into their own paradise. Like the first paradise, however, this one featured hidden dangers. Unfettered sexuality provoked jealousy and rage. The root of the Thai plant one mutineer discovered could be distilled into liquor. The underlying problem, though, was building a society with criminals, concubines, and malcontents. Within four years, all of the Polynesian men and half of the mutineers had been murdered. A few years later, only two Englishmen, Edward Young and Alexander Smith, remained with the fearful women and children. The mutiny on the bounty films are uninterested in the fate of Pitcairn Island, but for Christians, this is where the story really begins. While poking through the items saved from the ship, Smith, one of the two Englishmen still surviving, discovered a Bible and a book of common prayer. Smith couldn't read, but Young taught him before succumbing to consumption in 1801. Smith studied the Bible for years and became convinced that everyone on the island, at this point, himself, ten women and many children, needed to live by its principles. He instituted Sunday worship and daily prayer times at which he would offer petitions like this, Suffer me not, O Lord, to waste this day in sin or folly, but let me worship thee with much delight. Teach me to know more of thee and to serve thee better than ever I have done before, that I may be fitter to dwell in heaven, where thy worship and service are everlasting. Amen. In 1808, an American ship discovered Pitcairn Island, where the crew was shocked to find a community of 35 English-speaking Christians. The Americans reported their find, but England was too busy with the Napoleonic Wars to do much of anything about it. Six years later, a British ship rediscovered Pitcairn, and though the crew had orders to seize and kill any mutineers they found in the South Pacific, they couldn't bring themselves to disrupt a peaceful community by punishing Smith, now known by all on the island as father. Smith still feared recapture, and he changed his name to John Adams after the American president in a rather curious move to avoid it. But no one came to seize him, and he died on the island in 1829. Even sincere biblical teaching couldn't turn Pitcairn into an earthly paradise. Every community has its problems. But Smith's work made a huge difference. The island, settled by fugitives from the law, has a courthouse, but it has never hosted a trial. Pitcairn's three jail cells house only life jackets. (laughs) So notice that Alexander Smith fixed his eyes on the Lord... And it made a huge difference. It transformed him from a mutineer to a man of God. And I think he found favor in God's eyes as he led that community, you know, to the Lord and to turning their eyes to the Lord. And it made all that difference there. Aren't you glad for God's word? It transforms us. It talks about the importance of marriage and what that should look like and how difficult it is if we try to attempt to to turn someone from the things of this world to the things of God and so we need to be mindful of that and as we think about that would you just bow your heads with me so worship team comes to lead us in a closing song Lord we come to you I just pray the Lord that that we would take seriously marriage like you do. I pray too, Lord God, that we would just worship you um, for your grace and your patience. Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never given their life to you, never sought eternal life, that they would do that today. 
So, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would move now as we worship you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This closing song is called Run to the Father, and it's just a...